Hi, we are here celebrating Women's History Month with a collection of dramatic readings by actress and writer Julie Butters. Ahead of their time, inspiring women of literature. In these excerpts, Julie will bring to life some of classic literature's most exciting leading ladies and several historical women who created brilliant works in defense of their gender. From Sappho to Anne Frank to Virginia Woolf, from Jane Eyre to Phyllis Wheatley, from Jane Austen to Zora Neale Hurston, forward-thinking women of literature, both fictional heroines and women writers, continue to inspire us with their intelligence, independent thinking, and strength of character. Some, like the heroines of Shakespeare, are well-known. Others are not. The world's first known author, in fact, is a woman few have probably heard of, in Hedewana, a Mesopotamian princess and priestess who lived in the 23rd century BCE and wrote poetry in praise of the goddess Inanna. Today, I'll share excerpts I've adapted and condensed from writing by and about several women who were ahead of their time. These women aren't inspiring because they are perfect. Like all of us, they have their flaws and blind spots, but because they had the courage to question what was considered acceptable for women of their time and test or even break those boundaries. While for sensitivity reasons, I'll perform as women whose background does not differ enormously from my own and whose material falls in the public domain, I encourage you to seek out the broadest range of literary heroines who continue to inspire women in the arts and in the world at large for decades or even centuries after their time. We begin our journey on the North Shore of Massachusetts with Anne Bradstreet. According to the Poetry Foundation, Bradstreet was the first woman to be recognized as an accomplished New World poet. She was born in England around 1612, but spent much of her life in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In fact, her port of arrival was Salem, where she traveled with her family in 1630. Though Bradstreet never attended school, she was well-educated by her father and wrote on topics ranging from love and motherhood to the place of women in society. In her poem, Prologue, Bradstreet expressed humility at her perceived literary limitations, but defied those who would exile her from the poetic arts. She wrote, I am obnoxious to each carping tongue who says my hand and needle better fits. Later, she wrote more glowingly of women's capabilities in her poem, in honor of that high and mighty princess, Queen Elizabeth. No Phoenix pen, no Spencer's poetry, no Speed's, no Camden's learned history, 
Eliza's works, wars, praise can e'er compact. The world's the theatre where she did act. No memories nor volumes can contain the nine Olympiads of her happy reign. Who was so good, so just, so learned, so wise, from all the kings on earth she won the prize. She hath wiped off the aspersion of her sex, that women wisdom lack to play the wrecks. Was ever people better ruled than hers? Was ever land more happy, freed from stirs? Did ever wealth in England so abound? Her victories in foreign posts resound. Now say, have women worth, or have they none? Or had they some, but with our queen is gone? Nay, masculines, you have thus taxed us long, but she, though dead, will vindicate our wrong. Let such as say our sex is void of reason, no, tis a slander now, but once was treason. Anne Bradstreet's poetry is the kind we can imagine another literary heroine, Anne Shirley, swooning over in rapture. Why has Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables, a red-headed orphan with an overactive imagination and a penchant for rambling conversation, become one of the best-loved women in literature? Well, not only do her quirks make her charming, but her pluck makes us feel that Anne, and perhaps we too, could do anything she sets her mind to regardless of the obstacles. In this excerpt from Montgomery's novel, Anne rhapsodizes about her life's ambitions when she is chosen to participate in a special class to study for the entrance exam into Queen's College to become a teacher. Oh, Marilla! Studying for the entrance exam into Queen's College has been the dream of my life! That is, for the last six months. I shall take more interest than ever in my studies now because I have a purpose in life. I would call it a worthy purpose to want to be a teacher like Miss Stacy, wouldn't you, Marilla? Jane and Ruby are just going to study to be teachers. That is the height of their ambition. Ruby says she will only teach for two years after she gets through, and then she intends to be married. Jane says she will devote her whole life to teaching and never, never marry, because you are paid a salary for teaching, but a husband won't pay you anything. Oh, it's delightful to have ambitions. I'm so glad I have such a lot, and there never seems to be any end to them. That's the best of it. Just as soon as you attain one ambition, you see another one glittering higher up still. It does make life so interesting. French playwright and social reformer Olympe de Gouges would have approved of Anne's ambitions. De Gouges wrote openly on topics that were controversial in the 18th century, such as abolition 
and women's rights. During the French Revolution's reign of terror, she was convicted of treason and executed by guillotine, not only for opposing the violent tactics of the then government, including the execution of King Louis XVI, but for political writings, including her famous Declaration of the Rights of Women and of the Female Citizen. This document, published in 1791, built upon the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, published a few years prior. Her work criticized men for not securing rights for women in the revolution, laid out the terms of women's equality, and implored women to seize their due. Woman, awake! The alarm bell of reason is making itself heard throughout the world. Recognize your rights. Man, now freed from enslavement, has turned unjust toward you, his companion. Oh, women, women, when will you stop being blind? What are the advantages you have gathered in the revolution? A more marked contempt, a more noteworthy disdain. The reclamation of your inheritance, founded on the wise decrees of nature. What have you to fear from such a beautiful enterprise? Are you afraid that our French legislators will say again and again, Women, what do you have in common with us? Everything you must tell them. If they persist, oppose courageously. With the force of reason, their vain pretensions of superiority. Unite under the banners of philosophy. Deploy all the energy of your character. And you will soon see these men turn proud to share with you the treasures of the Supreme Being. You have the power to free yourself from whatever barriers you face. You have only to want it. Some women inspire in the public square, others closer to home. In Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, the March sisters revere their mother, affectionately dubbed Marmy, as the epitome of all that is just and good. A woman who helps the less fortunate, stands up for others, and encourages her daughters to find their unique paths in life, Marmy is the rock the March sisters lean on when life goes awry. Her wisdom shines in moments such as this one, when she counsels a tearful Joe on how to curb her temper. Watch and pray, dear. Never get tired of trying and never think it is impossible to conquer your fault. Remember this day and resolve with all your soul that you will never know another like it. Joe, dear, we all have our temptations, some far greater than yours, and it often takes us all our lives to conquer them. You think your temper is the worst in the world, but mine used to be just like it. I am angry nearly every day of my life, Joe, but I have learned not to show it 
and I still hope to learn not to feel it. When I feel that hasty words mean to break out against my will, I just go away for a minute and give myself a little shake. Your father has comforted me too and showed me that I must try to practice all the virtues I would have my little girls possess. For I was their example. A startled look from one of you when I spoke sharply rebuked me more than any words could have done. And the love, respect, and confidence of my children was the sweetest reward I could receive for my efforts to be the woman I would have them copy. I hope you will grow up to be a great deal better than I am, Joe. And I also hope you know that you may say anything to your mother, for it is my greatest happiness and pride to feel that my girls confide in me and know how much I love them. Without a mother as wise as Mrs. March to guide her, Elizabeth Bennet of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice relies on her own discernment to navigate her emotions and the dictates of her tongue. In refusing a marriage offer from the very wealthy Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth, who faces an uncertain financial future, makes a shocking misstep in the eyes of society. But Austen's heroine, believing, however erroneously, Darcy to be an unjust and unkind man, bravely chooses principle over practicality in her refusal. In such cases as this, it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed, however unequally they may be returned. If I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I, with so evident a design of offending and insulting me, did you choose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character? And do you think that any consideration would tempt me to accept the man who has been the means of ruining perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister. As for Mr. Wickham, you have withheld the advantages which you must know to have been designed for him, and yet you treat the mention of his misfortunes with ridicule and contempt. You could not have made me the offer of your hand, Mr. Darcy, in any possible way that would have tempted me to accept it. Your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others have built so immovable a dislike that I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed on to marry. Austen herself never married, though she did receive at least one offer, and she advised her niece, Fanny, to take time choosing a life partner despite matrimony's pecuniary advantages. In turning down Darcy, Elizabeth follows such advice with an unexpected reward. Her courageous words inspire Darcy to reflect on his own arrogance 
sparking a change in his behavior that enables her to fall in love with him and accept his second proposal. Throughout history, women have faced the question of how to survive and thrive in a male-dominated society that sometimes sees women primarily as objects of desire. In ancient Greece, for example, a woman could be married without her consent and was expected to serve her husband in all things, including the marriage bed. Yet in the body Greek comedy Lysistrata, written by Aristophanes in the 5th century BCE, the titular character turns woman's role as romantic plaything into a powerful weapon. Weary of ongoing war, Lysistrata successfully rallies women from warring cities to forswear intimacy with their men until they agree to peace. It comes to this. Greece, saved by woman. Our country's fate is henceforth in our hands. Are you not sad? Your children's fathers go endlessly off soldiering afar in this plotting war? I am willing to wager there's not one here whose husband is at home. Now will you help me if I find a means to stamp the war out? Oh, women! If we would compel the men to bow to peace, we must refrain. We must refrain from every depth of love. Why do you turn your backs? Where are you going? Why do you bite your lips and shake your heads? Why are your faces blanched? Why do you weep? Will you, or won't you, or what do you mean? Lewd to the least drop in the tiniest vein, our sex is fitly food for tragic poets. Our whole life's but a pile of kisses and babies. By the two goddesses, now can't you see? All we have to do is idly sit indoors with smooth roses powdered on our cheeks our bodies burning naked through the folds of shining Amorgus' silk, they'll beg our arms to open. That's our time. We'll disregard their knocking, beat them off, and they will soon be rapid for a peace. To win her battle, Lysistrata leaned in to female stereotypes. Joan of Arc broke them. Women born as peasants in 15th century France spent their lives tending home and hearth. Yet at roughly age 17, Joan, who claimed that God had sent her to inspire the French army to defeat the attacking English, helped lead that very army to critical victories. She wore men's clothing and spoke up to her social betters, from the King of France to the leaders of the Catholic Church who tried her for heresy. Refusing to recant her beliefs, Joan was found guilty and burned at the stake. Yet the ultimate victory was hers. Today, Joan is one of the world's best-known saints. In this excerpt from George Bernard Shaw's play Saint Joan, our heroine stands up 
to the accusers calling for her death. Light your fire! Do you think I dread it as much of the life of a rat in a hole? My voices were right. Yes. They told me you were fools, and that I was not to listen to your fine words nor trust to your charity. You promised me my life, but you lied. You think that life is nothing but not being stone dead. It is not the bread and water I fear. When have I asked for more? But to shut me from the light of the sky and to chain my feet, to make me breathe foul, damp darkness and keep me from everything that brings me back to the love of God when your wickedness and foolishness tempt me to hate him? All this is worse than the furnace in the Bible that was heated seven times. I could do without my war horse. I could drag about in a skirt. I could let the banners and the trumpets and the knights and soldiers pass me and leave me behind as they leave the other women. If only I could still hear the wind in the trees, the larks in the sunshine, the young lambs crying through the healthy frost, and the blessed, blessed church bells that send my angel voices floating to me on the wind. But without these things, I cannot live. And by your wanting to take them away from me, or from any human creature, I know that your counsel is of the devil and that mine is of God. Thank you for listening to part one, Ahead of Their Time, Inspiring Women of Literature. Thanks for listening. Stop by again. <laughs>